0: Are we doing this? Let's do it.
1: Hey! Oh, wait a minute. We'll keep this. No, just joking. This <laughs> be like Radio Lab intro with it. This is okay.
0: Go ahead. I'm Aaron Nathans. I'm Michael Ronstadt, and this is the Nathans and Ron cast.
1: The draw gets bigger every time, Aaron. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: oh, boy. Hello. How are you doing?
0: Good. We're in, uh, we're in Boston.
1: We are. We're, you know, we recorded a lot of harmony vocals and lead vocals for uh, North Wind uh, two albums ago in this very room. So it's, right uh, here, yeah. it's correct that we're back.
0: It's got yeah. good acoustics. We yes. just did, did a show last night in uh, West Brookfield, Mass., How'd it go? It went really well. There were good, good acoustics in that room, too. Little uh, library, more than 100 years old.
1: Yeah, it almost, it had these angled walls, and the sound went up and then pushed straight to the audience, and then we had two air conditioners giving us a slightly out-of-tune G or A or something like that. It was, uh, it was we were, uh, it was very lively.
0: Uh, Only you would know the note made by an <laughs> air conditioner.
1: Well, I'm I'm sounding like I know, but I'm taking a guess. So know that I don't really know, but I I'm pretty sure, (laughs) pretty close. Knowing you, um, you know how I mentioned not to pop your peas? I just popped a pea, by the way. I'm sorry. Can we say that on radio? Yeah, I think so. No, no one will complain because it's audio jargon, I guess. Mm. Uh, Well, we've got a song for this episode, and it's called man and a whale man and a whale and only i would write a song with that title it's kind of a fantastical journey on land in water i'm not sure where it goes or how it makes any sense but aaron you liked the song and that made me like the song more and i wrote it years ago tried a bunch of different settings Mm -hmm. and about the fourth rewrite i had it for this album so I I was just, uh, it's kind of a global warming, global change, whatever we want to call it, song, you know, fear of nature going away, sadness about parking lots and Mm -hmm. humans building things on top of what's already there. So it's kind of a lament in a way, and uh, it doesn't end very happily, I'm guessing. At least the song doesn't end very positive. Uh, The whale just roams so many miles Mm -hmm. so many miles it almost harkens to the blue 52 whale that apparently at one point they felt existed and it was the only one of its kind because they could hear this one whale song but it was only just a single song that idea that it's just searching for someone else i don't know how did how did the song hit you
0: well let let, can we play a bit of the song just to uh, yeah let's play a bit of of it. Yeah.
2: around saying, oh no, pondering the roads built on nature's veil, littering the ground with wild disease, footsteps take us closer to the peak that drops,
0: you know, this. Uh, you've got a lot of very specific ideas when you talk about the song. For me, the way that it hit me was just that this was a, a beautiful, dark, but kind of all-encompassing song. A stream of consciousness, at least that's how it hit me, in a way, where it, it, I was just kind of letting it wash over me. I couldn't necessarily tell that it was an allegory about climate change. I couldn't. But it, upon second or third listen, I'm able to start to get that, and I just I heard this song and I I heard harmonies, and wow. so to me it felt like a little bit of an Indigo Girls type uh, opportunity to really dig in and, and sing a song together, um, you know sometimes. You harmonize on my stuff, and I harmonize on yours, and we come up with different parts for the songs we write together. But I think this this is one of those rare times where we're actually singing together through almost the entire song. Um, and that 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 felt it, 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 I could find I could hear myself in your song. That's awesome.
1: And and you're mainly a lead vocal person, so when when I know you hear harmonies, that means it's extra special in my mind. Yeah. You know, this song has a lot of really. Amazing Musicians. Let me look at the track. (laughs) One second. We'll cut this out. I
0: think think they're all you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There might might be all me. Let's see. It's track six. The way we listed it, we we have... I'm doing lead vocal, apparently. Um, What else? (laughs) Amazing Musicians. Well, you play cello. (laughs) I played a five-string electric cello doing bass lines, which just sounds like an upright bass, but this low wail sound. You know... When you hear that, you, it's it's resonating. Yeah, I guess I did some acoustic cello. Yeah, uh, it looks like I had nylon string guitar. It's a pretty simple approach, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron, you added steel string guitar, mm-hmm. and then harmony vocals, and you did the solo.
0: That's right. Yeah, I, and I don't do a lot of solos. I think you know, being a part of of this this duo. Uh, you, you really stretch me. You cause me to do things that are a little bit out of my comfort zone. And I think part of the joy of of making music with you is your confidence in me to do things that I'm not necessarily... You know, having, having Aaron do a solo is kind of like an off-label use of Aaron. Um, <laughs> but... You're you like know, the grocery
1: store brand, what, yeah.
0: what <laughs> <laughs> but you trusted me, yeah. and, and you know having me do harmonies, you know I don't, uh, you know it, that doesn't come naturally to me. That's a skill I learned through working with you. So I think this song really stretched me as a as a musician. Well, why don't we play the solo? Oh boy! Just listen to how melodically perfect
1: this thing is. I always like to throw at least one solo per album at Aaron because he's going to go and hunt for a bunch of melodic ideas we're all gonna go that's it and (laughs) and and what does it do it is iconic so let's play that's very generous of you See how it, it, it laid the foundation for me to have this cello orchestra come in. Because <laughs> I think there's a, a big old cello orchestra that comes in in the second half right. and just does flurries and flutters and fligglewops and flabbergasts and, whops and all that stuff. There's just a cacophony of more cello than you thought you needed. And Do you know might... how
0: many cellos? Are there?
1: Did we do 12 on that one? I don't know. I mean,
0: we, we, we try to outdo ourselves on every album. Uh,
1: I can't remember. I'd have to look at the session. It was a lot. It's
0: a lot. It feels very nautical, this song.
1: Yes. And, and you know, we, we don't tend to record with a click track. We practice with a metronome and then we try to have an ebb and flow. It's almost a classical approach. But if it feels good and you can still snap your finger to the music, it makes the song work. And there's something to that kind of natural, this is live feeling. So when we track our instruments, we do it without the click track in general. Um, yeah. There's a few songs that want it, uh, but most uh, allow us the freedom to present it to you in a very organic way. Are there any other sections as, of the song that stand out to you?
0: you know, it's been a little while since I've, uh, <laughs> since I've heard it. So <laughs> It's a pretty simple chord progression.
1: We have kind of a minor-ish section. And then the chorus tends to be like this major seven, almost 60s pop ballad Mm -hmm. thing. At least I I see it as that uh, when I think of major seven chords. We'll play a little bit of like the, the chorus progression.
2: Mountains to the west and blue skies leak. Through the clouds can see dark green trees.
1: Okay, we'll play a little bit of the um, verse progression.
2: He walks around breathing oh so slow pondering the
1: tone. You know, I think the progression kind of em- helps emote something. You know? mm-hmm.
0: But go ahead. Yeah. Well, spot. I mean, we're gonna uh, we're gonna be introducing our guest in a moment. Um, okay. And any 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 final thoughts on the on the music before we start to uh, talk about uh, whales?
1: Our voices over the years have blended more and more harmoniously. You know, you you work together for about ten years plus. It's almost like you're related. So we have an amazing guest because even though the song is kind of this, you know, whimsical Wonderland of imagery and. A world that doesn't quite line up with the real world, but more of a dream world, it does have an air of darkness and uh, despair or maybe uh, a loss of hope at the mm. end. One of the creatures that I think on this planet happens to be one of the largest creatures they their environment is
0: very threatened by humans. We have an expert on whales that's right it's uh, It's exciting to this is kind of our jumping off point. Uh, into the world of whales. You know, we're in Boston for a reason, and we'll be we'll be telling you a little bit more about that in the next episode. For now, I uh, suffice it to say that we are going to be speaking with uh, Nick Pyanson. He's a, the author of the book Spying on Whales, which is a great book. It's just so evocative. He's a great writer. He's a scientist. He's traveled all over the world looking for whales, working with whales looking into the bones of whales. Um, So Nick is the curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, DC. And his work has taken him to every continent. And his scientific discoveries frequently appear in major publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Geographic, yada, yada, yada. He has uh, just He's very accomplished, and we're so honored that Nick has agreed to speak with us today about his wonderful book. So uh, without further ado, here is our interview with Nick Pierson. All right, we're here with Nick Pyenson, and uh, he's the author of the amazing book, Spying on Whales. Uh, which is really an enjoyable read. And we're so glad that you're able to uh, to be with us today.
3: So happy to be here.
0: All right. Are you in, uh, in Washington right now?
3: I am. Yep.
0: Awesome. I am a graduate of American University in Washington. So I...
3: Right up the road from here.
0: Quite fond of that city. Um, so let's talk a little bit about I mean, since this is a podcast about about music and, and connections to music, whale song, I mean, can you, can you tell us a little bit about the song that a whale makes and why we as humans are so interested in, in the whale song?
3: Oh gosh, I think I can do the former but not the latter so well. Or at least I can give <laughs> you a personal answer that's not not everyone's answer maybe. But um, mm-hmm. whale song, the kind that um, I think think has been made famous over the last 50 years, uh, kind that you hear on recordings and um, imitated and uh, elaborated in pop culture. Those tend to be um, what people think uh, when they hear the idea of whale song are specifically probably the songs of male humpback whales and uh, those were first identified in the 1970s. And th- these are uh, long, deep moans and groans that sound unearthly. Uh, you know, that I will not imitate one for you. Uh, uh, I'll leave that to other people to do.
0: And Michael will um, be doing that later. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> on,
1: on the cello, please. On the cello.
3: However you prefer. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's only male humpback, so we think that it's related to, you know, probably has some sexual selection context that relates to mating. Um, and what we know is that since it's been identified and studied uh, over the last 50 years, it has evolved in structure. And uh, uh, the complexity of it, the hierarchical structure has changed through time. So whale song that we've originally measured in the 1970s is different from the whale song today. The other really interesting part of it for me, I think, is that it's a great example of culture outside of our own species. There's many other examples that uh, I'm sure uh, listeners would be familiar with from other animal species. But in the context of humpback whale song, it uh, is an example of culture because it is information that is transmitted and imitated and elaborated between individuals that are not related to one another across ocean basins and through time so this parcel of information this way of communicating gets exchanged and traded and then um it evolves in its own right which all these traits kind of fit our basic definition of culture um so -hmm. it's for me, I don't have an issue talking about culture outside of our own species, but uh, for some people, that's a trigger.
0: Mm. I don't like to put my head underwater. As much as I don't like um, uh, boats, uh, I definitely don't like deep sea diving. And I'm sure you've you've. Uh, can you hear sound underwater?
3: I mean, um, I'm not a diver. Uh, uh-huh. The the stuff I'm looking for for whales tends to be found. Uh, well above water or on you know former sea floors that have now been uplifted or, um, mm. or sea levels fallen away um so their their bones their skeletons are are the things that i i look mm. for and study um i can tell you as somebody who's gone swimming a lot that you can hear underwater uh ah. it's, our our human ears are not as adapted for hearing underwater as other marine animals but Mm -hmm. uh, whales have the ability to hear because they have acoustically isolated ear bones that allows them to Mm -hmm. hear directionally and attune to low frequency sound. And it's because their ear bones float in a space, Mm -hmm. cavities on either side of their skull, separate from the rest of their skull, that it gives them a receiver that is Mm -hmm. independent of the housing of that receiver which is the skull and that's a really unusual arrangement among mammals and whales have had Mm -hmm. that arrangement for over 40 million years before they really became fully adapted to life in the water they had acoustically isolated ear bones and that's a that's an insight that you can only get from studying their fossils which i think is you know the big picture for me is The reason why fossil whales are cool is because they tell you something that you wouldn't otherwise know just looking Uh at the world as it is today um so going back to humans swimming underwater yeah you ever when you put your head underwater you try to listen it's not easy right it just sounds like lub 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 sound everywhere well that's because our ears are adapted to hearing out of the water in the air and um most terrestrial animals are are the same way and mm-hmm. any species that's evolved to live in the water and whales like other marine mammals all share terrestrial ancestry so they represent lineages of animals that have returned to the water and undergone subsequent evolutionary transformations you know loss of the hind limbs a tail that uh evolves a fluke uh maybe there's a whole bunch of breathing and diving and and um Uh, other sensory system uh, modifications from what they had as terrestrial uh, species many millions of years prior. So um, in the case of whales, they've evolved the ability to hear underwater and to hear directionally. And what that means is that you're able to know where predators coming from, if it's emitting sound or know where your food is, or know where another individual of your own species is. For the purposes of your podcast, what I think is a big takeaway is that sound is essential for how whales see and perceive the world. Um, Mm -hmm. One group of whales today, toothed whales, use sound as a way of navigating and communicating. Another group of whales, the filter feeding whales, use sound as well. And we know that they emit sound, they sing. Uh, They're like humpback whales that, Uh, have whale song. How they hear is not exactly as well understood. Uh, But in either case, sound is an essential part of how they operate in the world. And that should concern us because we've made the oceans far more noisy than Mm. they were even decades ago. Um, There's also the use of sonar and um, really, really loud bangs from various industries that all contribute to soundscape that is really you know if we're being honest detrimental to their well-being so i always like to think of this as um as the bigger picture of wanting a future with whales living alongside us Uh, it's clear that many whales are ocean ecosystem engineers that their presence in ecosystems enhances ocean health so we should want a world with more whales now one of the problems is. As we as a species urbanize the world's oceans, we're making it a lot harder for whales to survive. So, um, a lot of these answers are different in different ways. You know, the measures mm-hmm. we can take uh, collectively to make the oceans less of a harmful place for whales uh, that comes down to economic choices and, and legal instruments that we have to protect them. Because I do think we want a future alongside them
0: sure it seems like um like I was uh I was listening to the 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 beginning of Moby Dick um,
2: yeah
0: and it seemed like just a different time a different world um it it seemed like whale hunting was kind of really prevalent at that time and it seems like today it's it's pretty niche around the the world but but the fact that it that, that that it's so much less than it used to be shouldn't necessarily give us comfort that uh that we're doing what we can to to ensure the future of whales right
3: yeah well there's a lot to unpack with with that one uh uh chronicle um moby dick to me is you know uh whaling steampunk uh <laughs> if you know a bit about the context of herman melville and his Contemporaries, you kind of understand a bit more of why he was writing in that way and definitely inspired by his own experiences. And, you know, America at that time was a different place than the United States right now. Uh whaling was an industry and contributed to the wealth of cities like New Bedford and made them uh one of the most prosperous um places in the United States at the time. And that certainly isn't true now, right? Um we uh, wealth is a different, has a different manifestation now, on uh, in different industries. And the whaling industry was powered in large part by having ships that did go all around the world to, um, collect their quarry, whale oil, either rendered, um, from the thick blubber around the sides of whales, or, uh, they would go after sperm whales in the thick, um, chambers of oil that, Sat right above their skull in what's kind of anatomically uh, the homologue of our nose. And um, so whale oil was really important before the discovery of petroleum. Um, but that doesn't really ex- ex- answer why whales nearly went extinct in the 20th century. That was a major industry that was basically powered by uh, whale meat for um, human consumption or for the purposes of whale oil used as a oil substitute, um, like margarine and, uh, the scale of devastation in both cases is dramatic. Um, Mm. certainly in the 20th century, more than in the 19th century, but this is all just the tail end of centuries of exploitation of whales, wherever they could be found, whatever nations were pursuing them, uh, started in the North Atlantic expanded to, um, the north, the western side of the North Atlantic, and then the South Pacific, and then the North Pacific and the Southern Oceans. So, you know, throughout time, these oceans, as we got better and better at killing whales and and hunting them and uh, removing that biomass from ocean ecosystems, we really changed the structure and we think the function of ocean food webs. Uh, Consider the amount of biomass that you remove with any single whale and multiply it out by the several million of what millions of whales that were killed during the 20th century not to say anything about previous centuries which we have reliable records but probably less accurate if that makes sense and um today yeah you you said niche uh i the word i guess i'd use to describe it is artisanal that whaling today happens you know there's the united states is still a whaling nation um and yeah, that was surprising yeah, well, it happens north of the 48 uh, uh, continental states. Um, Native Alaskans still hunt whales, and they have an exemption from the U.S. Marine Mammal Protection Act to do so. So we are whalers. Americans are whalers. And um, I have a colleague, Michael Moore, who um, has made the argument in a book, and the book's titled We Are All Whalers, and it says that the scale of our consumption, the our need for products that in many cases are shipped to us Cargo ships or uh, the cruise ship industry, those are the industries that cause the greatest threats to whales today. Because when whales, just say in the United States, feed in the summertime, they feed in the same places that happen to be the busiest ports in the United States. Mm. So the survival of whales, the future of whales having made it through whaling, now relies on how we protect them from our own economic needs.
1: You know, I'm, I'm always curious when someone's like you, you're such an expert at a certain field, and so if you ask a musician, like me, a cello player, where would you go back in time? What is, I guess, it relates to like a question you, this burning question you want answered. Is there something that has been such a mystery in all your research and all your publications, and and where you're like, I need to know. Why this happens, and the only way is a time machine. Is there there a certain period of time, or like a burning question that you've run into that you just wish, wish you could answer, um, because it would solve other problems that you're trying to figure out.
3: When I take a step back and I look at whale evolution, one there's two big features to me about it, and uh, from those two big features, if we're going to outline it, you can draw a lot of questions and. Um, those questions kind of yield more questions and you reconcile your questions with what's available as evidence. Um, So I wouldn't say that the scientific work I do is so contingent on wishing that I had a time machine for a specific place, Uh, but instead what I'm kind of interested in looking at these broader evolutionary patterns. So for whales, the two phases of its of their evolutionary history is first the transition from living life on land to life in the water and that takes place in the first 10 million years of their evolutionary history but then the next 40 million years is the second phase which is the story of what happens to whales once they are in the water and for a long time i thought uh you know as of this week I thought that story of what happens to them in the water includes innovations, evolutionary innovations of navigating and feeding. Uh, If you're a large filter feeding whale, well, how does filter feeding evolve? That's a very complex tissue system and we don't have all the data, but uh, it sure is interesting. The same is true with toothed whales, like killer whales and sperm whales. They navigate using sound. using echolocation well how did echolocation evolve and um, is this related to how brainy toothed whales are Um, i would also say size is an innovation itself extremely large body size we kind of think of you know just kind of like scaling up an image but that it in itself is also an innovation and i thought that a lot of these innovations were kind of restricted to the second phase of whale evolution but this week i think the the paper that was published shows that size was also an innovation in the first phase as well. And for me, I get the most out of interrogating these patterns, not in isolation. So it's the realization that whales are among the most recent examples of a phenomenon that has been ongoing in earth history for a quarter of a billion years. And that's the rise of ocean giants from land ancestors. And that happened 250 or so million years ago with all the marine reptiles that adapted to life in the water from terrestrial ancestors as well and these are um, groups of marine reptiles now completely extinct but lived alongside uh, dinosaurs during the mesozoic era ichthyosaurs plesiosaurs mosasaurs sea turtles um, even penguins that evolved uh, a little bit right after the end of the cretaceous um These are all different lineages of four limbed organisms that made a living eventually in the world's oceans and modifying their skeletons tremendously to do so. And we, by inference also think they modified parts of their soft tissue and parts of their behavior and parts of their ecology. Um, So that's really what's pretty cool is if you answer a set of questions about whales, All of a sudden, because whales have such a good fossil record, you can go over to other groups that don't have such a great or don't have such a well understood evolutionary history and start to ask these cross-cutting comparative questions. Why is it that these organisms are successful when they undergo this ecological transition? Um, What are the evolutionary steps that have to change in their skeleton? Are there similar patterns? Are there unique aspects and then i think looking right now we want ocean giants in the world's oceans ocean giants are good there are ecotourism industries there are also reasons for our own appetites some people eat these ocean giants Um, and they also probably again as i said before have a role to play in ocean ecosystems with ocean health so um understanding the traits that make ocean giants successful uh, whether they're a whale or things that are almost like whales is going to be really important right now and looking ahead into the future.
1: I was listening to an interview with a polar bear specialist and they had made the comment. You took that, a little pause
0: there
3: before yeah. you said "special." <laughs> <It's a, laughs> so, I was really, really wondering where that was going. So. Yeah. So,
1: so, so um, yeah. Sorry. let me start take two. Let me take two. Honestly. Oh no, I, we're keeping that in. Go okay. ahead. Okay. We had a polar bear specialist, uh, Dr. Aaron Curry from the uh, Cincinnati Zoo. And uh, she was saying that if you have no Arctic ice, you have no polar bears. And so it was really interesting to hear in the interview that you had, how you mentioned that when polar ice melts, you get more water, more food resources. Uh, for whales, which could be in some sense in the short term, good for whales. But the problem is you also have shipping lanes that open up that haven't been opened and new resources that humans want. It broke my brain a little bit to hear that. I was like, well, this it, it, it's not it didn't break my brain because I understand that that it's complicated. I'm curious uh, between different types of animals and with your expertise, what kind of connections you see with where we are possibly going on this planet?
3: so we're all caught in this situation together right um how we adapt and for scientists evolutionary biologists when they talk about adaptation they're talking about traits that happen across generations but the way you hear about it in the media is talking about adaptation to our current situation within a generation it's meant more specifically for human culture and human kind rather than across generations which is you know by extension also implied for the marine mammals that live alongside us in your case polar bears and whales yeah the effects of climate change are complex and not necessarily clear cut in one direction or another less ice means no ice for polar bears to get around and hunt so that is going to push that species in a direction that's probably perilous Uh, that kind of peril is true for, say, a species like blue whales. If there's no krill, if krill can't adapt to a more acidifying ocean, then blue whales are really stuck with trying to find some different prey to feed on. And they have to feed on prey at the right density, or else they can't make the return on the energy investment to maintain their enormous body size. So um, it's not, you know, the natural world is not, as simple as species x eats species y in a static stage environments are changing all the time they change seasonally they change annually and for arctic species they've only adapted to an arctic that's been around for maybe the last three million years and that arctic is being pushed through major major change that is beyond what we Know of in the past, both in its rate of change and magnitude. Um, I think when I when I wrote *Spine on Whales*, the data that we had said the Arctic was warming maybe two to three times as fast as the rest of the world, polar regions warming two to three times faster. And now it looks like it's more like three to four times faster. And we hope that doesn't that rate doesn't change, but we don't know. Earth's Earth systems are complex and really dynamic. And it's hard to predict. We've really pushed these systems hard. So, um, what I would say is that it sounds like it's perilous for some species and maybe a boon to others, but we don't know how organisms evolve in the context and how of these changes and how fast they can evolve. Um, some corals may actually evolve to future climate states on earth and, you know, Yes, extinction is bad, but it's also uh many species kind of evolve new tolerances for um the states that we'll be in, so we don't know, and I think that that lack of ability to really predict the response of biodiversity to climate change that should be cause for concern mm-hmm. that 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 doesn't mean let's in my view and this is this is an opinion it doesn't mean that we should just keep on going. It means that well clearly we ought to try to mitigate these changes as much as we can. while also understanding that organisms will adapt to future climate states, whatever they may be.
0: Hey, when I'm in Boston, I like to go to a few different places. Um, Aaron, do you like nature? I, I do like nature. I like to get away from it all, even when I'm in the middle of it
1: all. We are in the haven of green space in Greater Boston, in the
0: neighborhood of Jamaica Plain. I don't always go to Boston, but when I do, I go to Jamaica Plain. Yes, and so there's some places we could
1: go. We could go to the Lauren Greenough House, Franklin Park, Jamaica Pond, the Arnold Arboretum, and you can even take a walking tour with the Jamaica Plain Historical
0: Society. You know, and there's, there's one place whenever I'm in Jamaica Plain that I like to go to. It's a vegan ice cream shop, and that, it's got a great name. The name of that vegan ice cream shop is...
3: FOMU.
0: That's right, FOMU. It's, uh, have you ever been to FOMU? Mm. Did we go last time? I don't think we did. We didn't. I, there, there
1: was a place in Tucson called Cashew Cow, and so I'm very happy that there's a FOMU in Jamaica Plain,
0: there's a lot of history here. Uh, ca- catch it while you still can. It's 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 a beautiful beautiful uh, uh, place to walk around. If you, if you have a dog, it's a good place to walk your dog. If you don't have a dog, you can still borrow one and walk it. You get one of those
1: fake leashes that has an imaginary dog at the end. That's like it's like you didn't wash the leash for about a year, and it just holds its own shape. Uh, Fake dog leash, you know, that type of thing. And,
0: and the funny thing is, nobody will look at you uh, as if you're doing anything strange. People are very accepting here. People just take you the way that you are. Uh, and if, if you need a little bit of coffee in the morning, you can go to Third Cliff and, and get... Uh, I'm drinking some Third Cliff coffee uh, right now.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. We have more. There's even more.
0: And if you like cow in your ice cream, we have J.P. Lick's. JP, short for Jamaica Plain.
1: Look at that. When you visit Boston, you want to go here first. Come to Jamaica Plain.
0: They'll okay. stamp your passport. And exactly. And then you're free to move about the area. The esteemed neighborhood of greater Boston. Let's get back to the show and In our interview <laughs> with Nick Pierson. Why do you think humans are so fascinated in in popular culture with, with, with whales?
3: We know that fascination is millennia old. Uh rock carvings have um pretty good evidence for humans hunting whales or at least scavenging them if not hunting them. And we know that the many eras of whaling have inspired so much lore. You know, uh, Aristotle definitely dissected or at least studied whale carcasses on the beach in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's from that legacy of, of fascination and investigation that we have our knowledge about a group of animals that are fundamentally really hard to know. It is hard to know about something in the oceans, especially something that moves around a lot that lives at human lifetimes and has a biology of superlatives you know, the biggest, the largest, the fastest, the deepest diving. Um, So that invites all kinds of uh, fascination, you know, if you're for for human culture and uh, also investigation. I mean, the, the science of whales has evolved as we have gotten better tools and as we've asked different questions using different lines of evidence and actually been better at observing whales in, their, in the environments in which they live. Mm-hmm. Ocean environments are extremely complex and can change daily to annually to decadally. Um, so I think that there's very good basis for how much space whales occupy in our cultural, our common cultural uh, uh, lexicon and iconography for sure. Um, you just said it yourself with Moby Dick as, as Mm -hmm. one of the key pieces of American canon uh, Leviathan, a story, you know, a few centuries older um, is a description of um, political economy. And uh, it clearly is describing um, something monstrous, something like a whale. We use Leviathan in, in uh, to evoke the idea of a whale So um, they're gigantic, they're hard to know, they're sometimes inscrutable, you know, even when we ask basic questions, we still don't know the answer. And uh, I think there's something about that remoteness, that distance that just is uh, endlessly appealing and fascinating. Mm. You know, Whale Song, going back to the intro, is so captivating to us that we put its recordings on the human greeting sequence of the Voyager 1 and 2 Uh, golden disks that are now outside of our solar system i just think that's such a wild thing that we don't even know what it means and it's been put on the side of spacecraft so um yeah that's about as strong of a testament to human fascination i think is as you can point to uh and we still don't know we still don't know how many species there are actually of whales in the world's oceans alive today uh, we still don't know what most whales do for a living. Their natural history is incompletely known. So if it is so important that we know something about how whales will live alongside us in the future, gosh, we have a lot of work to do. And I think that should be exciting to anybody who wants to study whales, that there's so much more to know.
0: So why, why do you study whales and how much does that tie into your, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, day job? I mean, how much of the, I know that you, you deal with fossils at work, right?
3: Yeah. So, um, in my professional capacity, I'm curator of fossil marine mammals. And, uh, the way I think about it is a curator is a steward takes care, organizes, uh, preserves something. And those things are fossil marine mammals. Whales are marine mammals and they do have a fossil record. And the Smithsonian institution, uh, where I work at, has the world's largest collection of fossil marine mammals. We have some 15,000 specimens from every continent, from every time period. Uh, a lot of which was collected before I started uh working here, and it's my job to know about them, take care of them, make sure that they stay around for another 175 years, in some cases add to the collection. Um and you know, knowing about these bones is is not really trivial either. Some of them tend to be really large. Um, collecting them is not an easy thing either. So um, that stewardship aspect is really important as a public-facing institution. Mm-hmm. We want to take care of it, preserve it, but also be able to share it. And that's where new tools like 3D digitization are really important for being able to communicate what we think we know and what we think is important uh, and also, you know, I think as when we talk about communication, we are telling stories. Now, we're not telling tall tales. These stories are all rooted in fact, but they're stories of in so many different ways. They can be stories about scientific fact. They can be stories about humans and stories of discovery. Um, they can be stories about uh, what it means to other people outside of Washington, D.C., and I think about that with um, you know, first peoples and indigenous peoples that they have their own stories about whales. Um, and having an inclusive framework for thinking about that is really important uh, moving ahead as we try to recognize spaces for all these ways of telling stories and ways of knowing.
1: Well, you know, I just, I'm so thankful that you you know, came on uh, to do this tiny little podcast with us. We've been trying to take what we did in our musical expression for for this whole album and try to help those who know our music to learn a little bit about anything we may have been singing about, the people we sing about, we wrote their stories, in this case, you know, the general topic that I had some lyrics on, and uh, you've really helped expand that so that, you know, everyone's going to have a lot more to listen to. You know, everyone's going to have a lot more to think about.
3: I'm so touched to hear that. Um, that kind of connection is really um, humbling. And uh, you know, I think, I think of uh, music is just another. Um, it's another kind of storytelling. It's just as old as, um, you know, actually, it's as old as anything really okay. uh, that we do. And it's pretty important for our, our well being and our our understanding. I think these are all different ways of knowing. Um, and, um, there's something powerful about combining it with things that fascinate us. Um, you know, the, the written word and, and, you know, songwriting, writing lyrics is, is part of that. It's an essential way of us to understand the world that we're in that is complex and not really fully noble. And, you know, I think that everybody has that experience, um, Aaron, you're talking about going on a, trying to go on a whale watch. Mm-hmm. And I was just recently, I recently tried to do the same thing with, with my children. And, uh, it was a complete failure. We went out, tried to go on a whale watch in the Bay of Fundy and got fogged out. There was not a whale to be seen. Oh, no. I don't know if it's because oh, we went man. in the afternoon yeah. instead of the morning, but, um, you know, their first experience trying to see a whale in the flesh, um, was a huge bummer. Oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just those are the chances that you take when trying to do something in the real world. But also, gosh, it really underscores how hard it is to know about this group. And you think, you know, in today's age with all the tools that we have, satellites and, you know, removable probes and drones and boats everywhere, that we still can't find whales on a given day in a place where sh- where they should be, where they were hours before Boy. in the summer where they should be feeding um, it is hard to know about parts of the world. And for me, you know, one of the reasons I, I'm a scientist is because the way of knowing, the scientific way of knowing for me is, um, is elevating. It, it is inspiring to me. It's a way of, uh, it's a common language that cuts across cultures and boundaries. And, uh, it's a way of knowing that's hard, uh, in some ways it's durable, and uh you know that's literally as hard as the fossil bones themselves that are in the collections right here in uh, the natural history building so um the it's the time scales to me that that sometimes get to me i was talking to somebody the other day and it, and they said uh something about a 40 million year old whale and they said did i get that right 40 million years and i said yeah you know i <laughs> I deal with millions of years like it's pocket change. And to me, it's a very casual thing to do, right? But if you try to wrap your mind around millions of years, it wrecks you. It's just kind of, you know, it's so hard for us to, to grasp that. And as a day-to-day scientist, I take it pretty casually. And I try not to think about, you know, what it really means. And because and, I would stall out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do the work. Instead, what's a little easier for me is to contemplate the history of my workplace, which is the Smithsonian's been around for 176 years. And we definitely have collections from just before the institution was founded. In, there are fossil whales in here that were collected before the Smithsonian was around in the United States. And so if I do my job right, hopefully someone 176 years from now will open a drawer at the Smithsonian and look at what I've done and say, yeah, Nick didn't screw it up too bad. I can still, you know, answer my given question uh, 176 years later. And that's, that's the kind of contribution that I think is um, that that's where I get a lot of meaning out of my work.
0: Do you listen to music out when you're, when, when you're working around the world? Oh, of
3: course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, um, I would say, so I don't, I don't bring uh, music on a device with me. I usually like to have it. I have enough to keep track of.
0: You bring a mandolin or something.
3: I don't bring instruments. So um, I don't bring instruments, but let me get to, I'll I'll give you uh, a vignette. Recently for recent field work, I've I've been in the middle East. So it's been exposure to a non-Western culture. And uh, I um, in Qatar, I end up driving around for hours on end. And so I just, I like having the radio on and just listening to um, whatever's on, on local radio stations and uh, whatever my colleagues bring along mm-hmm. uh, is usually what it's kind of, you know, full immersion in another culture, which is something I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, in Chile uh, for a while, I was listening to Inti Ilmani, which is like a, they classic Chilean um, musical group. And maybe you guys can mm-hmm. queue up their their music, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're great. But <laughs> more recently I discovered one of my key collaborators uh, does Tom Jones covers and he's um, kind of, <laughs> he has his own recording studio that he's built. And uh, the the most precious thing to me is receiving through, um, you know, message on my phone, all the audio files that are Tom Jones covers and, and a few other like new wave covers that he did too. And it's all, uh, this is Mario Suarez, who's uh, who's actually in Spying on Whales, key collaborator in Chile. And uh, I always knew that he had, we, we always talked about how Mario had such a great voice and, you know, listening to him sing in the field. And he'd sometimes bring music on a phone and be, you know, dancing to Duran Duran while we're looking for fossils. But um, I didn't realize that he was also a musician, you know, so invested in his own craft that he recorded his own covers. So that's, that's something that, um, music will tie me to time and place. And, um, I cherish that because I I've had such great experiences doing field work in places like Chile. And, uh, when you go to a place field season after field season, you grow a lot more connected to it in a familiar way. And that's been one of the great privileges is being able to connect to place and people. Uh, who are far away from home and give you a sense of um, camaraderie it's not necessarily belonging but it's but it's uh, partnership and collaborations are some of the most important parts about doing science today i think Mm. Uh, there's too much to know and it's too specialized for any one person to know everything so your success as a scientist in doing science is contingent on having a good team and you know Unless you're just recording your own music all on your own, um, I'm sure you guys have had the experience. Playing together with other people is really fun.
0: It's absolutely key. Yeah, you're looking at it right now, to, uh, me and Michael. It's
3: true for science too. Yeah, I mean, science is a creative enterprise, and so is so is art. And these similarities between art and science, to me, are not that surprising. It can
0: be so easy to speak in in, in uh, a language that excludes most people, and you fa- you found a way to take this fascinating material and expose it to the broadest um, audience possible. So my my hat is off to you.
3: Thank you so much, Aaron. I, I think it's, um, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that um, it was useful to you and that it said something to you. And I I think that's the job of a scientist now more than, more than ever. Um, It's the people who know the information who, not everybody's a, a, a storyteller, but it's something you can learn. And, um, some people may discover they like it a lot more than others. And if you aren't such a great storyteller and you're, you are a scientist partner with people who are, I've had such a great time partnering with illustrators, artists to convey visually the, um, sometimes really arcane, really specific technical parts of it. And, uh, you know, that technical knowledge can be a real barrier. For sure. Um, and scientists kind of sometimes don't know the audiences that they're talking to. That's that's a big challenge as well. I think the issues are just so acute, right? Um, climate change, biodiversity loss, um, generational, intergenerational injustices. We're trying to fix all those things. People are and those solutions are are um manifold, they can be at different scales in different ways but almost in all of them, you can't get around communicating, right? You do have to talk to somebody about the issue and about the solutions. And it will require expertise, and it will require how we communicate that expertise. People learn in different ways. And I'm just so struck how the ways how my children learn that's different from the ways I know I'm here, I am holding a pen, I'm still very analog. Um, Yeah, I like using fancy 3D tools. But um i still take all my field notes with pen and paper uh i'll use my phone occasionally take pictures but um which is a funny thing for those who were born before the internet using a phone to take pictures would strike somebody you know 50 years ago 100 years ago as being sounding pretty strange but um you know that's just how things change and um you don't know how to communicate what or you don't know what are going to be the best ways to communicate in the future, so we all i think it's a should be a positive challenge let's all learn how to become better storytellers in the ways that play best to our own skills and talents so
0: we're honored that you, that you uh chose us so th- thank yeah. you
3: thank you for reaching out and thanks for um you know creating the the opportunity for this kind of conversation i um can't wait to see who you guys bring on uh, next. So,
0: oh, thank you. <laughs> one word, Oppenheimer.
3: Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um.
0: There's actually a garbage truck rolling out. Let's listen for a second.
1: If I pan it right to
0: left or left to right, it'll make it feel real. Michael, I have one question for you. Yes. What note is that? I don't know. Mm, no one can see what I'm doing. <laughs> He's opening mm, a tuner.
1: It's a G. <laughs> wow! All I'm, right. I'm really good.
0: You are good. That's that's why we keep you. <laughs> I, I have
1: relative pitch, but not perfect pitch.
0: So you know yeah. that that was a great interview, and I, I really enjoyed. Thank you, uh, Nick, for for coming on the podcast. It's uh, and, and we so we we've got some exciting stuff coming up later today on the topic of whales. Yeah, next episode we're we're going to be remotely reporting back to you,
1: not live but delayed from a boat, a catamaran. Is that what it's okay, called? I guess it's a catamaran. I'm sorry to anyone a, who knows that's about a kind of a cat. It's yeah, meow. Um, yeah, anyway, we're we're going to be sitting on a thing that sits on water called ocean, and we're going to go visit uh, and look at whales. And they guarantee that we will see one. I'm not sure how they can, um, unless they speak whale, but uh, that's what
0: we're doing. And next episode, you can hear all about it. I I can't wait. Uh, This this, will be the the first time that we've ever uh, ventured out into the real world to do something other than make music, so... Exactly. Yeah, this will be uh, at least professionally. So this will be. This, this should be interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for, for, for joining us today. We, um, before we before we play the, the full song. Oh, okay. Do do we do we have the word of the day? Is it time? Well, for it's going to be after. After. I think. All right. Yeah. So we're going to listen to the, the full song.
1: Yeah. So we're going to play man. Oh, man. We're going to play manned, <laughs> We're going to play man and a whale. This is the tale of a man and a
2: whale Who dreams of the world in giant snails in ocean pond sitting quietly He walks around breathing oh so slow clouds can see dark green trees never poisoned by human disease that's the truest luxury Steps take us closer to the peak that drops far down, hundreds of feet, sailing downhill to our wild dreams, singing old songs. To the whales Who roam so many miles Who roam so many hours In defeat
1: Thanks for listening to that. I, I enjoyed hearing it again. Um, and we have a word of the day. Word of the day. Uh Aaron, do you have one? You want to start?
0: Blubber. 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 Top that. Well, I can't. Can't be done. Well, then 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 fail to top it with a different word. <laughs> Bird. I think you win actually. Okay, I there think you go. the simplicity is really what this moment Bird. calls for. That's
1: right. Bird. So anyway, that's uh, that's our podcast. Uh, you've been listening to the Nathan's, Nathan's and Ron Roncast. cast. Have a great day.
0: Peace. Meow.
1: Far sea croons itself to rest. A soft wind bends the slender blades of the dune grasses in the west. A pale cloud turns to pink.